Any organization is only as strong as its most valuable asset, its people. And as macro trends, including hybrid working and skills, continue to dominate the HR agenda, making data-driven decisions with real-time data becomes all the more important. But making sense of all that data can be overwhelming for both HR teams and business leaders. It's not enough to simply have the data, you need actionable insights. So where should businesses start? I'm Greg Thomas from Workday, and on today's episode of the Workday Podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by David Green, host of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast, director of Insight 222, and co-author of Excellence in People Analytics. We'll be discussing David's work and the role people analytics can play in helping shape the future of work. David, I'm so pleased you could join us today on the podcast here at Workday Rising Europe. Greg, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks thanks for inviting me to be on the show. Absolutely. So we'll start very simple. Could you give our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been working in HR pretty much since the, the late 1990s, which kind of ages me a little bit. The 20th century, as I like the to say. The 20th century, yeah, yeah. Um, mainly in the recruitment area, uh, talent acquisition. I spent um, five, six years actually in France, uh, working in a completely different industry, uh, the tech industry for a company called Amadeus. Uh, and that's how I kind of got the inspiration to learn more about how analytics uh, and data um, can help organizations and then started to apply that from, from an HR perspective, how we can look at our employee data and help our employees, but also help our businesses as well. Um, moved back to the UK in 2011, uh, spent some time at IBM um, and then co-founded Insight 222 in 2017. So we're in our fifth year. And we work with chief people officers and, and people analytics teams in over 100 global uh, organizations now. Uh, we help try and help them create more value from people analytics mm. um, through shared learning, accelerated learning. Uh, and we also help build data-driven HR functions through upskilling HR professionals. Uh, so that's, that's kind of that. As you said, I host a Digital HR Leaders podcast, so this is a bit of a role reversal for me. And actually, I co-authored Excellence in People Analytics with Jonathan Farrar. Uh, we met at IBM, uh, and we're both at Insight 222 now. And kind of the idea behind the book um, and the, really the key focus of the research that we do at Insight 222 is, is to help answer the, one of the questions that we hear the most from CHROs or people analytics leaders is, you know, what do the best companies do mm. with regards to people analytics? And then rather than start with the data, which we definitely wouldn't recommend, we took that, you know, with the book, we took the outside in approach um, and focused on what companies are trying to achieve. Yeah, the, the business challenges. The business challenge, higher sales, better employee experience, better customer experience, improved loyalty and how to get there. Uh, and th there's usually a people element to that. Book has 30 case studies wrapped around the model. Um, you know, and it, it tends to be help a CHRO can pick it up and just say things like, you know, how can we deliver more value to the business as an HR function? How can we better understand our employees and how they feel? How can my HR function be more data driven? You know, and how can we equip managers in the business with the insights in the flow of work, which is something I heard a lot this morning at the, the keynote at Workday Rising, um, to make better decisions. Hence, I'm at Workday Rising to, to talk to a group uh, of people tomorrow, a little bit about our research, but also share examples of how companies are creating that value. Yeah, um, what those best practices truly are. And, exactly. Uh, so a lot to unpack in there. So um, thank you for that. Let's, let's dive in. HR as part of the world, a lot of challenges, a lot of macro trends sort of impacting the way that work is being done, pandemic being one of them, but many, many others. When you look at that sort of macro scene, what are the big challenges that you think about and you talk with your, your clients about? Yeah, I think the first thing to do, say is HR's really stepped up to the plate in the last three years. Um, you know, you could argue that it's HR's turning the spotlight 
Mm. Um, you know, and I suppose the challenge for the function is, can it continue the great work that it's done during the pandemic as we move, hopefully post-pandemic? Now, we seem to be moving post-pandemic. We do seem to be moving past it. <laughs> I think the big challenge that everyone's talking about at the moment is hybrid work. You know, there's lots of opinions about hybrid work. Lots we, of definitions Lots of, of definitions, work. exactly, about hybrid work. And let's be honest, there's not a one-size-fits-all even within an organization. And employees, if you look at the research out there from the likes of Microsoft and others, employees have a very different view about their ability to be more productive working remotely or, or on a hybrid basis than employers who seem to think that everyone should be in the office. You know, and I suppose HR's role in, in some sense is to arbitrate between the two and, and come up with something that works for the business, but doesn't actually disincentivize people to work to stay and develop themselves within an organization. So I think that's a big challenge and it's a question that, that data can, can really yeah. answer. And it, it really does feel like, uh, I like the way you described that, HR is in this role trying to serve as a, uh, an arbitrator, but you know there is a balance that needs to be found there between what the business need, what employers need, and what employees want. I mean, the world has changed, expectations around work have changed, uh, but it's still work. We still have, we still have businesses to, to make sure are successful. Exactly. And that's where data can help us. You know, it's interesting. We're talking to one organization, big global organization. I can't mention them because that would be very rude. But the CEO was, was adamant that everyone needed to be in the office four days a week. And the people analytics team showed him, and it was a him, that actually before the pandemic, people were only in an average of three days a week. <laughs> so, you, you know, sometimes data can help arbitrate that, that conversation a, a little bit. And I think as well as understanding how employees feel and actually maybe that having s at least some bearing on, on, on how companies approach their, their hybrid uh, post work policies. And let's be honest, it's not just about where you work, it's about how you work, what, when you work and, and, yeah, and how, you how you collaborate, how you get work done. Exactly. And then start to understand from data, you know, Things like when does in-person matter? You know, what are the what are the activities that people were doing? It, you know, a hypothesis could be that when people join an organisation, actually joining the organisation in person, so when you're onboarding, meeting your team and your colleagues, meeting people you're going to be interacting with, there's a good hypothesis that actually you can be more effective if you do that in person. For example, uh, it could be when teams come together for the first time. So when teams form, mm. can that happen more effectively? in person versus you know, uh, remotely. Again, data can probably help to answer that question. I'm not saying either are here to be perfectly honest with you, because I think we're still learning about this. Yeah. When innovation's required or, or brainstorming's required, again, is that more effective to do it in person? You know, you need, you know, do you need to bring people to be more intentional about when you bring people together? Do you leave it to teams to decide? And I think we also have to accept that people can be productive in different ways. For me, there needs to be a, bit, a little bit of flexibility in there. Now that makes it incredibly complex. And that's where, you know, it's so important that we're asking the right questions uh, mm -hmm. and collecting the right data. Satya Nadella, I think, said the other, you know, Microsoft have studied this, not just internally within the organization, obviously, for all the data that they're collecting through all the, the technologies they've got. And they found this paradox between what employees say they're more productive working remotely versus employers who, who don't believe it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he talked about, you know, we need more data and less dogma. And I think that's probably the best way to, for companies well to said. approach it. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about just data in general and, and, and people analytics. It's, you know, if we wind the clock back however many years, it was probably HR perceived as a much more touchy-feely sort of field. That's clearly not the case anymore. And, and so when you think about 
about the role of analytics when you talk with your clients and, and, and those sort of HR change makers. How do you guide them on data and, and how analytics can help shape the future of work? Well, I think the first thing is always, you know, we, we talked about the introduction, don't start with the data, start with the business question that you're trying to solve. What are the most important business priorities for the organization? Whether that's increasing sales, whether that's growing new products and services, maybe that's growing geographically, uh, maybe that's getting to new areas for the business. You know, and then understanding what are the people elements of that. Um, yeah. And then start thinking, okay, well, what questions or what hypotheses have we got that we would like to test using data that can help us make more informed decisions uh, around each of these things? So I think that's a, that's a big thing to say. It's interesting because everyone thinks of data as being much harder in a way, as you said, Greg, in the question from, from the softer side of HR, but arguably data can help us understand culture better, understand inclusion better within our organizations, understand belonging by collecting the right data, you know, whether that's survey-based or some, some of the passive data that we can collect as well. So can actually, and this is maybe me being, I don't know, a bit optimistic, but perhaps by actually collecting the right data, we can actually help make our organizations more humane places, um, better places to work, and we can actually connect that to business performance. And I think when you connect that to business performance, that's when executives sit up and take notice. I like the way you framed that, and you even slightly corrected me, which was, which was appropriate, that it's not, we don't start with the data, we start with the business outcome, the business questions we're trying to answer. How's the world, how's the industry doing in terms of understanding that approach, starting with the business outcome as opposed to we need to throw analytics or data at the problem? I think it's a work in progress, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, if I look at all you know, the companies that we work with at Insight 222, I mean, progress is definitely being made. More and more companies now are using people analytics to help make better business decisions and, and actually measuring the outcomes of that, both from employee outcomes, but also business outcomes as well. So it's definitely improving. And clearly, there are some, you know, there are certain organizations out there that are doing it really well. Yeah, they're always outliers on the other outliers, side, right? You know, um, you know, I used to work at one of them when I was at IBM, and, and obviously, clearly, Microsoft we talked about as well. Not that many companies actually talk about what they're doing, though, which mm. means that, you know, those poster, those poster childs aren't, aren't as many, there aren't as many pictures on the wall as, as that perhaps are, but there are many other organizations that are, that are doing this. I think it's hard. I think it's hard, um, you know, in our research, we're seeing the person responsible for people analytics is increasingly reporting directly to the chief people officer. I think that's a start because the chief people officer, obviously, A, they've got budget and investment. They can invest in people analytics. B, they can, they can get you in front of the right people within the organization as well. And ultimately, it's up to the chief people officer in terms of investing in the development of HR professionals as well. You need more than just a people analytics team. You need to help your wider HR professionals, particularly HR business partners, be more comfortable you know, to ask the right questions, develop hypotheses, bring the most important uh, work to the people analytics team. So it's a work in progress, but hey, I mean, I've been working in the space for sort of eight or nine years and compared to where we were then, it, we are light years ahead. And I think the, the pandemic has really helped accelerate that. And when Jonathan and I were writing the book, we've definitely seen a shift from all the interviews that we did and the research that we did from people analytics being something for HR, for it to be people analytics as something for the business. So it's not just about dashboards and, and everything else as helpful as they can be, and they're certainly part of it. But we're seeing now, you know, a great example at the start of the pandemic, big pharmaceutical distribution company in the US, their people analytics team were able to 
pinpoint when they would need to close their distribution center on the east coast of the US because of COVID infections. That meant that the business were able to put contingency plans in place to make sure that the hospitals and the pharmacies on the East Coast that would usually have been serviced by that distribution center were otherwise um, serviced. So, you know, you could argue That's there fantastic. that people analytics is saving lives there. In, in, uh, you know, sounds a bit dramatic, but. You know. Well, but, but I think it's a great example of, of how you might have been able to intuit that a little bit without the data, without the analytics, without being able to look at it quite objectively. Uh, but that's sort of the beauty of, of data is it takes my opinion, your opinion, anyone's opinion out of the conversation. It, it depersonalizes it and turns it into these are the facts. Let, let's talk about now what we do once we've got this common understanding of, of what the facts are. Um, so, so you mentioned earlier you, you had you know, 30 or so case studies in the book that you wrote with Jonathan. What other examples would you care to share around how people are, are, are walking this path of, of using people analytics more effectively? Yeah, I've got a couple of examples. I mean, I think the first thing is, you know, when we, when we, when we wrote the book, which was published 2021, so just over a year ago now, um, we, we noticed um, that the, the companies that were really delivering value of people analytics were doing a few things differently from others. And in our research that we've just published this year at Inside 222, which I'll be talking about tomorrow at Day Rise in Europe, um, you know, we saw that there were three sort of three areas really. I mean, it, it seems fairly counterintuitive, but the data helps back it up. You know, number one, leading companies, as we call them, invest more in people analytics. Um, you know, it's not just in the team. You know, getting the right skills into the organisation, particularly behavioural scientists, data scientists, and consultants who can be facing up to the, the business, but also investing in their stakeholders, actually spending time with their stakeholders, not just HR, but business leaders to understand, really to get to understand what their most important problems are and focusing the work, prioritising the most important work, and then reprioritising that work almost on a, on, a, on a dynamic basis. You know, and then the other thing we saw that, again, not many organizations doing, but certainly leading companies are doing, is they're measuring the financial impacts of people analytics outcomes. Not every solution, of course, but they're certainly measuring some. That creates momentum um, for more investment. Um, and then they're using some of that information to support decisions around, you know, what solutions should they scale across the mm. enterprise. Um, and then around scaling, it's around scaling products and scaling culture. So yes, creating products that employees can use that maybe help them around personalizing their learning, you know, talent marketplaces, all this stuff comes from having the right data ultimately. Um, but also that data-driven approach to, to people as well. So I think that's quite important and, you know, and pretty much, you know, there are case studies in the book that kind of show this. So, you know, two, two examples. So I'll give you one from Shirovsky. So Ross Shirovsky, a pretty small people analytics team. Um, it's a good example of how a team can create significant value. Um, by having the right business sponsor. Mm. So it started and it turned a nice HR project into something much, much bigger. So it started off, um, they were trying to understand first year attrition in their retail business in the UK. So this is, this is before the pandemic. And they, they noticed a couple of insights around, you know, maybe how they were, the recruitment process, um, around how they were assessing potential candidates, also around um, probation. So after three months, people were supposed to get a pay rise. That wasn't yep. always happening. Um, they took, they identified, say, a six, around a six-figure euro saving if they could get these two things right. So, not, yeah, turnover is expensive. Yeah, not insignificant. But, but they took this to the head of retail business in the UK, and she was like, "This is really good, 
But what I'd really like to understand is what are the people factors that drive conversion rates in our store? So this is a key metric within retail. So the, the footfall into the store versus the number of people actually buy something. So the team went away, they worked with um, uh, the head of retail business, her team um, as well, tested a number of different hypotheses and found out five or six people factors. So there was these recruitment um, elements that they'd identified before. There was, around, there was one around central management, there was around around tenure of the store manager, and there was around the structure as well. They calculated if they could get these things right, and they had HR programs in place to do this, it was just a case of actually rolling them out more effectively. Then suddenly this sort of six-figure saving became an eight-figure, not just a saving, but potential extra revenue as well. When they started to compare store A, which was, had high footfall and high business, versus store B that had high footfall but lower conversion, lower conversion. rate. So really, really helpful. And, and then basically then rolled this out around other countries. Um, and pretty much the, the focus of that people analytics team at Shirovsky is on their retail business and their manufacturing business. And that's all they focus on because that's the most important areas. Of Those the are their biggest sort of. levers. So that's, that's one example. Um, another one is up from IBM. So a bit more sophisticated in terms of the, the actual analytics. The business problem, IBM, you know, like a lot of organizations, but IBM particularly is because it's been well documented, has gone through a huge transformation, invested in areas like cloud, mobile, security. Um, they had a fledgling people analytics team. They had been able all the way back from sort of 2010, 2011, be able to predict attrition and, and work out what they needed to do to not have attrition. They, 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 tried, they tried it, I think it was in China first. But the, the then CHRO, Diane Gearson, said that this isn't about attrition, this is about skills. Let's focus this work on these areas where we're trying to grow the business in IBM. Let's understand the skills that we need in cloud, in mobile, in security. You know, let's try and understand what we've got in terms of skills and then we can use that because that will inform our approach for in terms of mergers and acquisition, hiring, you know, development, everything. Um, and what they did, you know, is something which companies are increasingly starting to do. They didn't just go out and ask IBMers what their skills were. They actually use machine learning to infer their skills. Try to catalog um, it. Exactly, try to catalog it. It's, 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 you can, it's in real time more or less because rather than asking people something and having someone validate it and it's already out of date, you get pretty low adoption rates sometimes when you ask employees to well, do that. Well, again, you take that idea of what I might think my skills are versus what is my job performance and exactly. what, what, are my, what do my contributions say my skills are. And hopefully there's a high degree of overlap there, but at scale, that's, that's probably not going to work as well as, as trying to, to learn it by performance exactly. and by what people, you know, what, what you're actually doing, what people are actually doing. And people, yeah, as you said, sometimes people don't really understand the skills that they've got. They also don't understand the value of them. So once they've inferred these skills and, you know, and, and actually they went out and validated these with IBMers and their managers and they, they were pretty accurate. They then started to help employees understand the value of their skills on the open marketplace by bringing in external data. So saying, well, you know, these skills are in demand at the moment. It helped IBM themselves with their retention strategy, understanding, okay, well, these skills are in demand. These people have got them. So we need to, we need to do things to, to retain them within the organization. We can also, if you, you know, you, you've got the whole thing around skills adjacency as well. So if you've got skills one to five and you're highly proficient in those, you have a higher aptitude to learn skills six to seven yeah, to eight. A propensity there. Propensity. And actually we can pers we can actually tell people, actually if you learn these skills, um, number one, it will open up these opportunities within the company. Number two, it's going to have a really positive impact on your pay uh, mm -hmm. moving forward. Um, so you personalize that whole learning experience as well. That supports your workforce planning and then it supports your internal mobility. So 
I mean, I know again connecting all back to business outcomes. And right? I heard I heard one of your um, leaders today talk about how want to put skills at the center of the whole talent management process. And I think it does that, but it, what it does is it almost links what have been, you know, hitherto siloed parts of HR together. So whether that's, you know, you, you think about skills in recruitment, in development uh, and learning, in, in mobility, in retention, in workforce planning, and you start to link that, that common thread through that as well. So, so IBM have done that very well. Um, and even now they've got to the point where they've got skills-based um, compensation policies as well. So, you know, they're not the only company doing it, but we're, they're out there talking about it as well. It's a really powerful example, I think, uh, of how data can effectively enable a whole new approach. Yeah, and, and you know, picking up on the, on the skills thread, if you will, what has your work shown and what do you see as you, as you talk with your clients? Because as you mentioned, it is, it's clearly a topic here at Workday Rising Europe, but it, it, it's a very different way of thinking about human performance, about how businesses organ, organize around work, everything you talked about from recruitment to, to learning, to, to setting up what this job is and what this assignment is. What do you sort of see around the, in the skills landscape? Well, I think we're probably still in a really early stage. Or at the beginning, this. right? Yeah. Or, or, and, or near the beginning. And it's not just about putting, you know, talent marketplace in something. It, it's, it's, it's massive. I mean, I've, I'm fortunate that we, I've interviewed Ravin Jezuthazen and John Boudreau on, on the podcast, and, and their book, Work Without Jobs, is, you know, definitely something I recommend people reading that are interested in this. And, and the work of uh, Susan Cantrell and Michael Griffiths and their team at Deloitte around the skills-based organization is really interesting. What all that research that's out there shows is that this is, as you said, uh, Greg, a fundamental change. We've based everything around the job for over a hundred years. Yeah, maybe plus the pedigree, right? Yeah, Where, where'd you go plus to school? The pedigree. Where'd you go to school? Yeah. yeah, and now we're thinking about basing it around skills. I mean, the whole way we we do people management is is potentially going to change. So, not surprisingly, we've got a long way to go. So, I know um, the Deloitte team that I just mentioned they did some research around. Um, earlier this year around skills-based organization and they asked companies, you know, where are you skills-based across workforce planning, L&D, performance management, et cetera, et cetera. And at most, it was sort of somewhere between 15 and 20%. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect they went out to bigger organizations that were probably more likely to be doing this as well. So I imagine the real number is a bit less, mm. a bit like what we used to say about people analytics five or six years ago. Yeah, there's a bell curve, right? There's a bell curve. And it's same with us, you know, the companies that we work with, we ask them if they're doing skills-based workforce planning, for example, 90% said they want to do it, but only around 25% currently were. Now we went out to big global yeah. organizations as well. So there's a long, long way to go. Um, as a, and as we said, it, it, it's not easy, but the opportunity is big. And when I listen to people like Ravin and, and John and others and, and listen to some of the companies that are doing this and seem to be doing it quite well, you know, start, don't be afraid to start small, you know, um, prove the value within your organization, maybe pick an area that's fundamentally important to you where you actually, where a, a skills-based approach is more likely to play off than your current approach, a bit like what IBM did with the, mm. The businesses that they were trying to grow. Yeah, I think it will be a long, a long road, but 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 a very good and productive road um, to for companies to move down. Let's shift a little bit towards the, the the future of work, maybe more broadly. Again, sort of connecting those ideas as as you frame them up of of what the desired business outcomes or challenges are, and and where data or people analytics can help. Where do you see? those areas that HR really needs to focus on as the future of hybrid work continues, we come out of the pandemic, so that people feel supported and the, the, the objectives of the business continue to be met. 
And we've talked a bit about the hybrid work piece. I mean, we're only in the early stages of that. And, you know, you can't ask people, if you ask people now what they prefer to do, their answer might be very different in a year's time. So you need to be continually be asking those questions and, and adapting for that as well. Um, I think what's interesting, there's a few things I think they're going to be quite interesting where people analytics is going to play a big play and HR is going to potentially play a lead role. You know, the whole piece around workplace design. Mm. So if we are having hybrid workplaces and we are testing what people need to be together to do, we've got the, the, you know, the hypothesis that we talked about around onboarding, around people coming together to innovate. That's quite different from how people have used the office in the past. That's right. You're not just sitting in front of your computer at no. a desk. You're probably doing that at home. Yeah. So you've got to be a bit more intentional about the work that you're planning to do in the office. Um, there's no point coming into the office and doing six hours of Zoom or Teams meetings, for example. Um, so I think that whole workplace design piece could be quite interesting. And we're seeing quite a few HR functions rebranding themselves as people and places. So I think that's where you can bring that kind of workforce and workplace data together. So I think that's a really interesting um, development, which we'll see more of, I guess, in the, in the next few years. And, you know, companies like Salesforce are already doing that. Um, so I think, uh, and Uber, I think, and, and others, you know, particularly on the, in the tech side, those with quite well-developed people analytics teams, interestingly enough. And who probably were mostly remote, at least in, the, in their offices during the past three years. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, you know, we also looked at, when, when Jonathan and I wrote the book, the final part, the epilogue, we kind of looked at where do we think people analytics is going to grow in the, in the coming years. We didn't include hybrid work because we thought, it's a, bit, it's a little bit obvious and we kind of fused it through the whole thing. Two on the nose. <laughs> Two on the nose. But the number one is, is this whole human experience at work. So we've been talking about employee experience for a while. So you could argue it's the next definition of that. But that's what, in a little bit what I was saying at the start, really understanding our employees. And it's not just employees now. I saw, again, someone, um, Phil Chambers, I think, talking on, at, the, at the keynote about how you know, there are estimates that 50% of our workforce by 2027 are, are going to be gig, contract, or, or project workers, not, not employees. So we've got to think about the whole workforce yeah. and the whole experience. So I think that's, that's really interesting. And, and an employee listening, obviously, is a, is a key component uh, uh, around that, not just survey-based employee listening, but also looking at some of the collaboration data as well, really understanding what, what drives the right behaviors within the organization, but also well-being and everything else. So I think that's one area of human experience. Second area is we've talked about skills. You know, this isn't something that HR is just doing for HR's sake. This is something that's on, you know, the top priority list of CEOs and, and boards as well. Have we got the right skills in the organization to execute on the business strategy now and in three to five years time? How are we going to compete against competitors? So, you know, skills data is, is, is massive to, to be able to do that. And then doing the first piece as well about the human experience around personalization. Third one was around sustainability and culture um, and societal benefit. So if we think, you know, companies increasingly, you know, uh, again, we, when we did our research this year, we asked the question, where's people analytics adding the most value? Diversity, equity, inclusion came out as number one. And I think if we think about it, it's not just about doing that within our own organizations. It's potentially the communities that we serve. And we're increasingly starting to see that you know, people analytics teams in the early stages are starting to look at things like sustainability and, and, and climate. So how can you use your people data to support your ESG policy, for example? So I think we'll definitely see more of that because employees increasingly want to work for purposeful organizations are doing the right thing by the climate. So I think that's definitely an area there. 
And then the fourth area is around investors. Investors are increasingly asking companies for information around their human capital. I don't like the phrase human capital, but they basically people data to support their decisions around investment and valuation of, of, of firms. So we're seeing more and more companies now, for example, including people data within their annual reports. We're seeing more companies now publishing diversity, equity, inclusion reports. I think that's a trend that will continue. We've seen the SEC or in the US, you know, talking about you know certain metrics that, that the companies need to report. We'll see more of that. That's an opportunity for us in, in HR. It's an opportunity for us as people in people analytics teams to get ahead of that. Otherwise, finance will, will take that role. That's an opportunity for us. Lots of opportunity around the, the kind of future of work, the future of workplaces and the future of workforces. You can't get much bigger than that. And, and I think people data and, 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 pe and HR functions are, are right at the heart of that. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you say that. You know, we've we've heard for many many years now that, for for a lot of companies, their their people are their biggest asset. And and some of what you've just described, David, is about really. I don't like human capital as a term either, but it but it recognizes it's a it's a different recognition of the value of of the people that make up an organization, the, the continuing investments in them, their skills, their experience that need to be made for the benefit of the business, the benefit of of the world in which we all live. Ultimately, for most organizations, your people make up 70% of your cost or more, maybe slightly less in other in, in certain um, industries, but a, certainly a, an enormous proportion of your cost, probably your biggest. So why wouldn't you want to make sure that it's as, as, as productive and as happy as possible? So David, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today. Uh, for listeners who, who, who might want to learn more from you and your organization, where, where can they go? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, David Green. Um, I publish a, uh, a monthly roundup of great resources in the HR and people analytics space. Um, on Twitter at David underscore Green underscore UK, um, although Twitter doesn't seem to be so popular these days. Um, and then to find out more about Insight 222, if you go to Insight 222, that's the number two, three times, dot com, um, and you can find access to our research and, and, and about the firm there. And then the book is called Excellence in People Analytics. Um, it's on Kogan page. You can get it pretty much anywhere on Amazon, certainly. Um, so, and if anyone has any problems getting hold of the book, let me know. Um, send me a message on LinkedIn and I'll, I'll gladly see if I can help. There we go. We've been talking with David Green about trends in HR, the future of work and people analytics. David, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, Greg, for having me on the show. Don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And remember, you can find our entire catalog at workday.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great workday.